This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Western Hunting Hub podcast. And before we get to our interview with... George from New Hunter's Guide. I have a fundraiser giveaway, I'm calling it, that I wanted to make sure you all know about. Uh, I have a Hoyt Axius, brand new in the box, 28 to 30 inch draw, 60 to 70 pounds, right-handed bow, Kuyu camo, great looking bow, a couple years old, but still has the plastic wrapped around it. Got it for a, it's a long story, but it was meant to be a giveaway right before COVID and it never happened. Uh, the, the archery shoot that I was hosting uh, didn't happen. So that is now has been sitting in a box and it belonged to my old work. So I said, hey, let me buy that from you so I can get it into someone's hand instead of letting it rot there on the shelf. So I am doing this kind of as a fundraiser for good reason. I've got a uh, lot of, a few expenses that come with the podcast. I had to <clears throat> uh, recording equipment doesn't last forever, uh, but I'm doing good there. You guys supplied me with a <clears throat> Facebook fundraiser last year, and that went well, and it was able to get me what I needed. So I appreciate that. Also, now that I've joined the Waypoint TV Collective Group Network, it's a network. Now that I've joined them. They uh, are have a few more costs. My monthly costs went up a little bit. I went from $9 a month to $50 a month. So just to help me break even would be wonderful. That's all I want to do is break even and help someone else out with a bow. Um, you, you have noticed there are some advertisements going on in front or in the middle of the podcast. But I'll tell you what. Just made my first money the other day on advertising, and it was $15. So uh, not a lot going into the advertising. So 
Uh, that tells you right there. Uh, just need could use just a little help with some of these bills that we got associated with the podcast. And uh, maybe if you you don't this boat doesn't even fit you, at least maybe just drop a drop a donation, and then you'll get into the drawing and give it to somebody that could use it. So big thank you thank you to those that have donated. If you haven't yet and you still want to, you've got some time. December 2nd is going to be the time that, uh, is, no, not December 2nd, the second week in December I'm going to do the drawing. So i got a little time that I'm going to wait to, to hold this drawing. And what you do to enter is you can Venmo me. Uh, my Venmo handle is at Clint Whitley. Uh, or <clears throat> you can PayPal me, which is my email address at which is clint.a.whitley at gmail.com. And I've got that down below in the show notes so you can look at, at that. The only rules you really have, I have here, it must be 18 and must be in the lower 48. So that would be great so I can keep shipping down. But I'm trying to get this at least up to the, I need to make it at least to the point where I'm paying for the bow and maybe a little extra. So the $20 entries, Venmo me 20 bucks or send me 20 bucks and you'll get entered. Right now, your odds are pretty good. Um, I don't have a ton of people donating to it or putting into it. So uh, you got some pretty good odds. I think we've got five people that have uh, sent me money. So those are good odds for a $1,200 bow. I believe this was when when I purchased it. Uh, Hoyt, I didn't pay that right out the gate for when I got it. So um, we got discounted rates. So I'm trying to, that's where we're going to make up our money is that this was the discounted bow. And uh, just because it was for a, for a program. Uh, so we got it for, for quite a bit less. So we should be able to cover some of those expenses. But anyway, I want to thank you for those that, that have sent that already. And if you haven't, make sure you get that in at some point because I want to give this give this bow to somebody that, that could use it or at least someone that knows someone that could use it. So uh, if you have any questions on that or you don't have PayPal or Venmo, um, give it the times. Give Venmo. That's very handy. Or contact me and say you want to enter and you want to give me 100 bucks so that you could have five entries, uh, I'll figure out another way for you to send it. I'll send you, give you my address, and you can go send me a check or something. That's just fine. So uh, appreciate you all for listening. And in this episode, we got the new hunter's guide. Uh, George from Pennsylvania runs a podcast for new hunters. So it uh, was a good interview, a good chat with him, and another one of those fun connections made through Waypoint TV. Enjoy. All right, George, thanks for jumping on my podcast and chatting with me a little bit about what your podcast is about and, and kind of your avenue of education, we can all say. Uh, definitely this podcast world is an education-based thing, and I don't I don't even talk to a ton of other podcasters, actually, so I'm not always certain on other folks' reasons, motives for getting into it and that sort of deal, but I'm always kind of kind of curious and I, I would assume it's it's similar to some of my thoughts and reasons but um and I don't want to just talk about podcasting because that's not what people really care about but I'd like to talk also a little bit about the new faces of hunting and and how that relates to your podcast and who your audience is and and what they're who how the the 
hunting community narrative is changing just a little bit. So first, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah. Hey, Clint, thanks so much. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today and hope to get some of this information out there and share some things that I think people would really appreciate and find useful. Uh, my name's George Kanitas. I have been the host and founder of the New Hunter's Guide podcast for a little over three years now. And my entire focus is around helping new hunters get started and then helping active hunters learn new things. And uh, it's been a wild ride. I never, never saw myself as doing this, never wanted to do it. It was never anything that I ever even considered in my mind as something that I thought, oh, this would be fun to do someday. It just was sort of a thing that was birthed out of necessity and, and something I felt compelled to try to give back and to help others get started. What do you mean by that? Birthed out of necessity? Like what, was there something that just came up? You're like, I feel like I need to be doing this. Like what, what is that? Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe I should back up a little bit and just tell the short version of my story. Uh, I grew up as a kid, never hunted, never had the opportunity to hunt, always wanted to hunt as, as far back as I can remember. But no one in my family was a hunter, had no close friends or at least none that that offered opportunities to, to get engaged. And so one day I'm sitting at work. I'm, I don't know, 28, 30, 32, somewhere around that age range. And I'm sitting at work in an office, gray walls. And then it's springtime. The sun is shining through one of the windows. And I remember sitting there going, man, I need a reason to get outside. I need a reason to just get out there. I need a hobby. I had no hobbies at that point in my life. Just, you know, I was married, had a wife, had family, had church, had work, and that was basically it. So I decided, you know what? I always wanted to hunt, never was able to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. How hard could it be? And then that was the question that had I had the right answer to that question, I would have never done it. Cause it was so unbelievably difficult to get started in this thing. You know, how do you even get a license? I couldn't even, couldn't even find an answer. At that time, you couldn't get them online, at least not in PA. So I had to go through, figure all that out. How do you get a hunter safety test? How do you get a license? How do you find places to hunt? Okay, now what are you going to hunt? How do you hunt that? You know, first time I walked into the woods, I'm wearing basketball shoes and uh, khaki pants and I had a 12 and a half pound rifle that was just a terrible piece of machinery for the job. And it was just, you know, the most, it was just the saddest, most ridiculous experience ever. But I was in the woods and I was so thrilled. So I just sort of clawed my way up reading, watching videos, articles, books. And I mean, just tons and tons of content, book after book, thousands of videos, articles ad nauseum and then just taking what i'd learned and getting out in the woods applying it learning firsthand what worked what didn't work what i want to try next time and then you know a number of years later found myself in a position where i felt like you know what i feel proficient as a hunter especially for certain kinds of game and then one day it just hit me you know there's got to be a better way than this for new people to break into the sport there, there's just got to be so I started the podcast essentially to be the resource and the mentorship that I wish I had had getting started. And I thought, you know what, I can take whatever level I'm at now, doesn't matter what level that is, and I can give back and stop, talk to people who are at you know level zero trying to break into the sport 
or who are maybe they've hunted deer their whole lives, but they've never hunted anything else. And they're interested in something else. Maybe it's, you know, turkey, crows, pheasants, ducks, elk, whatever the case may be, and helping them get from, you know, what they, the only one thing that they know and expanding into new areas. So that was, that was the long, long answer to a short question, but that's sort of how I got started and found myself in this position where I was like, you know what? Somebody's got to do something to sort of cater to and focus on, you know, people that were in a similar situation like I was and, and just, I, I just couldn't help but do it at that point. No, that, that actually helps paint a picture. And I uh, had a neighbor recently that, uh, had done a similar thing and was really interested in hunting. Yeah. It's like, Oh, here, you gotta listen to this podcast. I really, really like it. And his feedback right away was, man, these guys seem too into it. It's like, oh, well, aren't you wanting to get into hunting? And, uh, it, it was listening to something that was far too elevated and too in depth into the hunting world that, it was not meeting him where he was at. And I think that's half the battle with uh, recruitment, retention, or actually recruitment of, of new hunters is meeting people where they're at. And that's, that's not where he was. So it sounds like, it sounds like you're hitting a, a pretty cool avenue of hitting those new folks where they're at because the, the typical hunter is not necessarily your, uh, not not like the 70s when it was a family thing and if you uh, grew up in a hunting family grandpa hunted dad hunted you hunted and that was the that's the typical avenue and and I we're I'm here in South Dakota and and have lived in Colorado and that that's a kind of how that mentality goes but you're over there in Pennsylvania what's the is that different there is that I'd love to know um kind of some of that how, how a lot of those people that you've connected with in Pennsylvania how they typically get into hunting or is that is that pretty similar yeah that's a great question and you brought up an, an excellent point I could have mentioned in my story was that you know I started looking at podcasts and they were all way over my head you know you have two guys sit down and talk for an hour and a half about you know advanced tactics for archery hunting trophy whitetails and I'm like, I'm trying to get into the woods and find a deer, you know, and it was just like that there was good stuff out there. There's a lot of good podcasts out there, but none of that was to the level that I was at. And, and to go to more specific to your question. So what I found is in PA, there are uh, there's three kinds of hunters primarily. You've got people that have hunted all their lives. They've got family that have hunted. You know, they've been mentored from a kid. They don't even know how they learned certain things. They just picked it up as they went. And, you know, as adults, they're they're proficient hunters and, and they know how to do it and be successful to, to a relatively good degree. You have the, the people who are uh, very similar to I was. Maybe, maybe they're 30, maybe they're 20. I've had some people even, you know, 60, 65, always wanted to hunt, but never had ever had a way into the sport and they, they, they dabbled a little bit here and there, but when they found out it was, it was difficult. Like I did, they just didn't know how to move forward and just didn't quite have the, the gumption to begin investing thousands, thousands of hours of research. So you've got those folks that now that they see a path forward, they're, they're willing to, to push through and get into it and, and follow up on it. 
And then the third group is you've got people who used to hunt something, you know, and then for whatever reason, got out of it, stopped hunting or didn't like that particular kind of hunting. You know, I've talked to people that years ago they, they hunted deer and they just never liked deer hunting. They didn't like just sitting there. They didn't like, you know, all the, 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 the prep work and things that went into it and the legwork of dragging deer out of the woods. And for whatever reason, they just then, you know, stopped all hunting. And then someone, you know, gave them the idea of, well, you know, there's other things out there. You could try bird hunting, you could try, you know, any different other kind. And all of a sudden, they know somebody or a friend of theirs or colleague or coworker or family member mentions something, gets their wheels turning, and they're thinking, well, maybe there is something else to this, you know, something that's more fun than than the things I didn't like about, you know, insert X hunting here. And then they go out and they start looking for information or, or looking for connections and relationships. And then they begin to a, a new journey in, in the hunting, but, you know, from a different side this time. Sure. And I'm, I'm really curious to start thinking about, again, I know this is a, the Western Hunting Hub podcast and we talk Western hunting most of the time, but I think as hunters from thousands of miles away, a few thousand miles, a couple thousand miles or whatever it is, uh, we are a part of the same community, but we probably know so little about a bit about each other's hunting styles, our culture, because uh, that, that varies from state to state. Uh, very, very easily, let alone multiple states away. Uh, so tell tell us a little bit about kind of what a typical hunting season or t- hunting year, let's go a whole year of walk us through August to December, maybe it's July to December, I don't know, or even further. Uh, what's what's that look like for opportunities in, in PA? Yeah, that's a great question. So I love the diversity of seasons that we have. Uh, I live in an area in particular that's good for certain kinds of hunting and more difficult for others, but that just sort of adds to the challenge of it. So for us, uh, archery season for deer comes in right around mid-September, and that's sort of one of the, the hallmarks. We've got dove season, and then we've got goose season that'll run through the whole month of September, but those are, you know, very minimally hunted for the most part. So you've got, you know, archery comes in right in the middle of September, plus or minus a week or so, depending on what part of the state you're living in. Then that season will stretch until mid-January, maybe late January, depending on where you're at. And as you go through the archery season in the fall, then you have duck season. It'll come in for a little bit in October. It'll go out. It'll come back in again in November, December, January. And that'll run concurrent almost with pheasant season and uh, grouse and all the other upland game birds. So, you know, there's a number of points in the year where you could be out in the woods with a bow chasing deer. You could be out with a shotgun chasing ducks. You could be out with a muzzleloader chasing black bears, you know, all at the same time, which is, which is a really cool kind of, kind of part of, of, you know, the culture here. There's so many different things you can be hunting. And as long as you can find a place, which is the biggest challenge of all finding somewhere that's not overrun with people hunting, either what you are or something else. Um, we, we do a lot of, 
A lot of the public land that we hunt waterfowl on is adjacent for no reason I can understand to publicly stocked pheasant areas. So you've got waterfowl hunters and pheasant hunters that, I mean, are literally running into each other in the field going to and from areas, which is uh, an interesting dynamic. But that's maybe a, a hyper-localization issue that we deal with here. And then you go through and then you have the peak rifle season, which opens right after Thanksgiving, first that Saturday following Thanksgiving. And that runs for two weeks. And that is uh, – it brings in what we call the Orange Army. You have so many people in the woods at the same time. It's almost anywhere you look, there's just dots of orange. And, you know, some people hunt by strategy. Some people hunt by just letting hunters walk around and push deer to them. And I've found that that two-week season is probably the most stereotypical, the most thought about, the most identified part of the word hunting. When you say to somebody here, you know, do you hunt? They're thinking that two-week season where if you're on public land, you know, it's just the orange army out and about and crazy things are happening. And people either sort of enjoy the energy of that or they just despise it. And they don't realize that there's so much more that you could be doing out there other than just that one thing. And then that'll run until, you know, that, that runs about two weeks. Archery season comes back in and then you've got waterfowl with it. And then not a whole lot from, say, February through the summertime, except for spring turkey season, which is uh, the month of May here, which is maybe my favorite time to be outside in the woods just because it's the springtime. You've got newness. You're chasing gobblers, and you've got all sorts of fun things happening there. And we sort of entertain ourselves in between those seasons, hunting crows, groundhogs, coyotes. Uh, those are in season almost the whole year, uh, at least for different portions. So, you know, there's always something to be hunting here. And almost any given month, I'll be out either hunting or scouting for something. Even in the the most off of the off season, there's still great opportunities for crow and predator hunting. So uh, we've got a full year of hunting, but certainly the the biggest focus of it is I would say September to January. So access is kind of the biggest challenge, it sounds like. And <clears throat> is it a population thing, do you think? Is it a public land thing or culture thing? I'm sure it's a mix of all all of those combined. But what do you think the core reasons are for access? Yeah, we, we are blessed to have a lot of public land in the state. There, there really is a good amount of acreage, but you have to get far away to access big chunks. So I live, um, you know, I, I would say just a little bit even outside of the suburbs, uh, you know, just out in the country, maybe 40 minutes, you know, by highway from downtown. And you got to go another 20 minutes further out past me to get to the first public land. And now that public land is, is is basically overrun during any peak season because there's so many people. And then you can go, you know, another 30 minutes and you reach a little bit more. And then you can go maybe another 30 minutes and finally get to the point where, okay, there's a lot of land and you've got, you know, finally the ability to get lost and get away from other hunters but there's such a high hunting population 
particularly of deer hunting that, you know, unless you really drive and, and get to places where there's big chunks of acreage that, that you can just sort of just get lost into, uh, it's really hard to find a convenient place that's easy, that's a short drive, unless you're able to, to get access to some private land. That's the one thing in PA, just it's one of the highest um, deer hunter counts per capita of any other state. Um, and there's just a lot of competition to get out there, which is the number one reason I started archery hunting. It's not because I just loved archery and always wanted to, to hunt archery. I was more fascinated with, with rifle hunting my whole life, but I thought, you know what, I can either compete with the Orange Army two weeks of the year, or I can get out for all kinds of opportunities for four to five months of the year. And to me, that just opened up all sorts of hunting places. I could have never hunted during the rifle season due to competition. And I was able to, to just you know, get out there. And there's a little bit of competition close to town, but you don't have to go far to reach places where you just never see another archery hunter. You don't see another car parked except maybe on opening day. And you're really able to to really enjoy the woods and and have nice chunks of space to yourself. Hmm. Very interesting. The uh, private land access. What's the culture around gaining permission? Is it is it? Uh, I'm sure it's not easy. It's not easy anywhere. But uh, maybe in relation to what you've heard from other folks in other states or anything. What's the um, What's the story on getting access to private ground? Yeah, that that's a sad question that I wish didn't have a sad answer. Uh, it is very, very difficult unless you know someone, uh, you know, family, friends, close friends, coworkers, somebody that you know and trust and they trust you and, you know, they're willing to give you access. You know, those kinds of relationships are, are relatively easy to get access through. But beyond that, knocking on doors, when I first started, I, I discovered our state's program that we have for, for access and all the properties that, that people have sort of opted into saying, yeah, we're willing to consider giving access to people. And I think I, I reached out to maybe somewhere between a dozen to two dozen different property owners and landowners. And I got one that was willing to give me permission. I offered anything I could offer. I offered work. I offered gift cards. I offered money, willing to, to pay, you know, whatever, to help out on the land, you name it. And I had one person willing to give me permission. But I had to book the day I was going to be on their, their small parcel, you know, months out in advance for most hunting seasons. And they had every piece of the property booked for the entire season. So it was like, okay, well, you know, deer that are hunted with to that kind of pressure is just not a good hunt to begin with. And I was like, well, you know, I appreciate the, the yes, but I, I couldn't understand how they were willing to devote the time to basically be a full-time booking agent for their no, property to, to keep people on it like that. So you know, they're very kind, but I just was like, oh, I need to explore other opportunities. So it can be really difficult. Now, if you're trying to hunt crows in the off season, you know, at a farm, you know, getting permission for things like that, not too difficult. Coyotes, 
not too difficult. But if you want to hunt deer or turkey or waterfowl or pheasants, uh, it can be really difficult to get permission from private landowners unless you know someone have a relationship. And leasing is not a big thing, at least not in my part of the state. I, I was looking for leases for a time just to just to secure something. And there's very few people that are that are, you know, have, have begun into that model in this area. So it's like you can't even pay your way into it. Uh, you just got to either work really hard on knocking on doors or get to public land and, and be willing to drive further or stay in hotels and get to big chunks. And there are some big chunks, you know, 20,000 acre forests and preserves and things like that you can get to if you're willing to drive or if you're willing to wake up super early or camp out or get a hotel room or whatever the case might be to make that convenient. Well, and consider you guys self-lucky, the pay for hunting stuff man it's contentious people get pretty up in arms and it, and it does there is a good chunk of that that takes away from some of the good old days kind of stuff that that it's just nice to go knock on a door and get rejected because they don't want people to be hunt, hunting there or uh you get to hunt because you put in some work or you developed a good relationship not a uh yeah we charge we we and they want you to dish out a bunch of money. And I realize that's, that's a, a money maker and a way to do that. But, but man, there's some, there's some, uh, bunch of hunters that really, really are not fans of that. And others, I, I know, uh, friends down in Texas that that's the only way, the absolutely only way to get access is you got to pay your way into a lease. Uh, any other access is very limited, especially in Texas where there's not much public land. So, um, well, well, that's kind of neat. Just kind of, I'm listening to, as you talk, I'm writing down similarities of hunting in the West and, and, uh, um, things I hear that, that even though you're quite a few thousand miles away, there are similar similarities in the same culture. So, uh, I'm going to review that when we get done, but the, uh, bear hunting in Pennsylvania, I've known since I was a little kid, bear hunting is, is, uh, some of the biggest bears come out of Pennsylvania. What have you had a chance to go chase bears or how do you hunt them there? Talk to us about bear hunting. Yeah, that is a great question. I've delved more into bear hunting this year than any year before. And we do, there, there are places, especially you get into some of those big forests. There are some serious monster bears. Uh, but most people that I know, at least, or people that are around in my area that I've talked to or, or gotten to know, uh, that well, the way they hunt bears is basically the same way they hunt deer. They get in their deer stand and hope a bear walks by instead of a deer, which mm -hmm. is really an anticlimactic way to hunt. But most of them are not hunting in areas that have a significant bear population. So they've never really invested in that skill set. I'm in southwestern Pennsylvania. If you start to go north any appreciable amount and, and you get away from, you know, Pittsburgh or you get away from Philadelphia or you get away from any of the, the significant cities and you start to go north where there's big chunks of private or of public land, you can really find some nice bear hunting. It really is. You can get into the woods. You can get far away from people. You can get up onto some ridges and some hills. 
And uh, you can absolutely do that if you're willing to to do some driving, to to go. The part of the challenge is we have a really short bear season and it runs concurrent with other things. So, you know, you kind of have to pick and choose, okay, what do I want to hunt? And, you know, last year I found myself literally sitting in the duck blind as people are texting me saying, hey, do you want to go on a bear hunt? You know, we've got this opportunity and I wanted to go. But I already had commitments for for duck hunting and and family things and stuff that was going on. And then there were some deer things that were coming up. And I was like, man, this is just not great timing. Like, who came up with this schedule of when these things are going to be running? I guess they figured, you know, nobody wants to hunt all these different things. But, um, yeah, the overlap is challenging and the season is short. Uh, there is a, a longer archery season. I will say archery hunting black bear is not a very large thing compared to rifle hunting. That can be significantly more difficult to get within archery range, which is one of the number one reasons people do it. But for breaking into the sport, you know, that's a tough one to get started on, you know, rifle hunting with deer or even, even, you know, shotgun hunt with, with bears meant to say bears on both accounts. That's, you know, much easier way to get started. Um, so I, I don't know what it is if they're just trying to protect the population with the shorter seasons. I imagine that's probably it or don't want them to get too wiped out in areas where you have higher populations of people, but less populations of bears. Is it a, uh, you're not hunting over bait, I'm assuming, or is it just total opportunistic kind of hunt? Yeah, we're not allowed to use any bait for... Uh, any big game hunting in, in our state. So sure. you've got to find the habitat. You've got to scout. You've got to try to figure out where they're going to be, get in there, whether you're going to hunt on foot or if you're going to hunt in a tree or a hillside, however you're going to do it. You've got to sort of put in the time and put in the work. And um, if you're traveling and specifically, then, you know, that adds a lot to it. You know, if I'm hunting somewhere where I, you know, normally go to hunt other things and I can be scouting, I can be thinking about it, I can be looking at that. But if it's like, okay, drive two, three hours north, stay there for the weekend, you know, you're either scouting or hunting. It's it's hard to be doing both at the same time. Um, so hmm. yeah, that's one of those things where the 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 difficulty is added more by the opportunity and the distance you have to go. Sure. But yeah, with, with the with the bear hunting, that, uh, that's the only bear hunting I've never known. It's not using bait. Uh, not that's got a whole another culture, and yeah, definitely some politics involved with that. Your neighbor state there, New Jersey, obviously has had some big things with bears recently, and uh, allowing bear hunting, not allowing bear hunting, allowing it, not allowing it, and so on. Lots of. Do you guys see a little overlap of that political backlash on that? You know, on our side of the state, I mean, we're relatively insulated. We're probably 500 miles away from that. Um, maybe not quite that far, four, 400, 450, but um, no, don't really hear too much about it. Um, you know, the culture over here with respect to bear hunting is very similar to deer hunting. Oh, that's it's, cool. Not a whole lot of people do it, but people appreciate it. People get excited about it. 
you know, if you post a bear picture on Facebook that you took, you know, everybody's going to be happy for you and thrilled. You're not going to be getting, you know, those kind of crazy anti, you know, whatever kind of feedback that, that you might get in an area that has more of a mixed opinion on the subject. Well, that's good. That's really good. It must be uh, a nice culture in that area to, to, um, to interact with. So I want to uh, shift gears just a little bit and kind of talk about your audience and, and who you're seeing uh, specifically, what types of people, and I know you mentioned that before of uh, who these who these new hunters are, but specifically, is it, do you see a lot of your listeners be college kids? Are they the young millennials? Are they women? Are they diverse groups? Who who are this who are these people that are diving into to hunting? Uh, yeah, the number one group, the number one and two groups that I've seen would be um, young and middle aged professionals. That seems to be the sweet spot. Now, my my uh, the demographics on my analytics tell me that it's probably split even 50-50 men and women, although I don't think I have ever heard a woman, you know, give feedback or, or write into the show or send me an email. So I, I kind of question those analytics a little bit, but it, it's been definitely, you know, probably ages – 25 to 50 um, would probably be the, the the big zone there. 25 to 50 men, professionals. Uh, it's I've seen about 50-50 split. People that are solo, you know, up and coming, want to get into the sport for themselves. And then I've got people that, you know, they're coming in trying to bring their kids into it and trying to find a hobby that they can do with their kids. Maybe their kids are you know, somewhere in the 10 to 20 range. So they're trying to get in or, you know, sort of to have this family activity that they can do and share or um, significant number of folks or the young professional route. They've got young kids that aren't old enough for hunting yet, but they see that, you know, this is a good time to break into this sport. So once the kids are old enough, then they have an idea what they're doing and can enjoy that with their family as opposed to, just trying to figure it out together and, you know, maybe get burnt out in the frustration of trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. So uh, a lot of people really seem to take my track or, or maybe those are just the ones that maybe the show resonates more with because that's how I got started and just wanted to have something that I could eventually share with my family. You know, at that point they were, I I think my son was, um, Actually, he, he was he was still in the womb first hunting season that I was out there. Hmm. And so um, but that was part of my rationale. I want to have a family. I want to have something I can share with them. And I've seen a lot of people following similarly. Those are the ones writing in. Those are the ones I'm having contact with, talking to on the phone, meeting, um, you know, via email or Facebook or people that are leaving reviews and things have a huge wall of, uh, you know, things listeners are saying on my website, newhuntersguide.com. Just a collection, not every comment that's come in, but just a collection of comments and feedback and things from people. 
that is just, you know, super encouraging. Anytime I feel like, you know, is this show actually doing something? Am I wasting my time? Am I just talking into the is void? Is anybody out there? Then, right, exactly. <laughs> then I go to that wall on my website and I read through the comments just sort of, you know, to to stir myself up and realize, okay, yeah, this is this is what's happening. And it's interesting, like, you know, this time of the year, I've got my biggest months in terms of downloads. You got the most people listening, the most people consuming comment uh, content, but then you have the least amount of feedback because people are taking what they're hearing, taking what they're learning, and then they're getting out into the woods. And then like once hunting season's over, you get closer to Christmas and January, then the feedback starts to people that, you know, they've listened for a year or two years and they finally did it and went out and this is what happened. And you start to get their feedback sort of after the season. So, but it seems like there's months you're just pouring into it and hearing very little back. Mm -hmm. And then it comes in like a flood after that time period. So it's interesting, the, the life cycle, but you know, you just, you just keep going because you get those stories that come in and you're just like, I mean, moved to tears reading the stories of people that have sent in and and just the things that they've experienced and the gratitude that they have. And, you know, you're sitting there just like, OK, I'm I'm just sharing what happened to me and and what I learned and how I got through it and then how I've grown since then. And it doesn't seem like a huge deal at the time, but it sort of has a building effect and then people take the advice and actually put it into play and it works for them. And, you know, you, you, their life in a way that was, you know, similar to how yours was impacted when you got started and, and had that first rush and it can be a really rewarding experience. You know, it's just what gives you the motivation to push on. Um, and uh, as you're talking here, I'm just looking at a few because of the podcast, if, or if it weren't for the, well, let me read it for word for word. I didn't want to lose another one. Without this podcast, I may not have started hunting. And that right there is all that person need to say. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Right? Um, or the the person here that, that talks about their first deer in Illinois. Uh, that That's pretty rewarding and pretty cool to see that there's people that just want a little assistance. And not saying everybody needs to start a podcast, but there's a lot of people out here out there that aren't being reached that want to fill that void or that, that thing in their life that is hunting or, um, whatever activity it is, but maybe hunting's that thing for them. And they are this lost soul of, I don't even know what a muzzle is. So how can I learn what muzzle control is in my hunt, hunt education class? Uh, so there is some massive learning curves out there. Like you said, you experienced and was difficult and a lot of these people commenting are exper expressing that same concern. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to where to go. And appreciate you going out there and, and or putting yourself out there and giving us some information. So uh, for the for the folks listening, take that to uh, your own personal life and those people around you that don't listen to podcasts, don't absorb hunting content. Well, and may have that little thought in the back of their mind. They may be someone that would be really interested, and and they just need uh, need a little help. And the the issue with that is time. Taking someone hunting is not an easy thing to do. Everybody has only maybe a couple of weekends or a certain amount of time in the field that they can 
spend doing that and taking someone new is is valuable time giving some of that up can be a tricky thing for folks yeah absolutely that's one of the big things in terms of getting new people in the field and trying to find a mentor it's just i think we live in a in a in a culture and a society that's maybe busier than ever before with so many things and you've only got so many days of field everyone you invest in taking someone else is one less day that that you're really out there able to optimize your chances of being successful. I know I've taken on multiple occasions, you know, new turkey hunters out. And, uh, you know, I, I pretty much write off any chance or hope, possibility of even taking a turkey unless, you know, it's one of those magic moments where somehow you get two or three to come in at the same time and somehow the the two of you don't spook them and they come in the range and they get a shot first and then you get a second shot and, you know, it's like a one in a thousand chance. And it's like, you know, you're out there for them. You're trying to teach them and mentor them and help them to absorb as much as they can. But that's one less day of you having a chance to take game. And when you only have a few days of field any given season, you know, you take one person out, maybe you take two people out, but, you know, to do much more than that, it, it can really, you know, eat into your time. And then a lot of people view it. And I've, I've seen a lot more of this on the national scale, maybe not as much locally, but still some locally, a lot of people view it as every new hunter out there is competition. Right. So I they don't want to same thing. Yeah, they don't want to introduce new people to the sport because that's competition. And and the unwritten rule is, you know, don't take anybody to a spot that you don't want to find that person later because chances are they're going to go back to the only places they know, which are the ones you showed them. And then, you know, you, you try to use your good spots to help people learn. And then they, they're they coming back and putting hunting pressure on your spots. And it's a thing where I feel like people need to – then there needs to be a mental shift need to not look at it from the perspective of, you know, these, these people are taking from me, these new hunters are competition, but rather we're out there together trying to enjoy the same thing and save our sport. Cause it is a sport that is in jeopardy. And I'm sure you know more about that than most people. Well, I was just going to say that even if you're not creating a hunter, uh, it's so important, I think, to create advocates for, what you do. And even just to have the conversations in a, uh, about hunting and what you do and, and all of that doesn't do enough. Uh, I've seen it over and over again of people, we can, we talk hunting, we, we do all this stuff together and planning and all of that. But then when it gets to being out in the field, we're going and doing our first sit or whatever it is, their expectations are, I have no idea what I'm getting into. I have no idea. We've been talking about it for a while, but I still have no idea. And then it's just that whole time, that first four hours, maybe it's only hunting for four hours, and it's just a complete, someone's a complete sponge, and they're like, oh, okay, I get it. I get an idea. And Or if we harvested something, they just are blown away, like, I am hooked. You created a monster. I'm doing this, <laughs> I'm doing this again. I've seen that over and over again and it's so cool to see. Uh, but there's the, the talking about it doesn't do it. And it's, it's just like on a, any Facebook argument 
talking about it doesn't win. <laughs> There's no winner ever in a Facebook argument. Uh, and some of the, you have to experience it. You have to under, be in the field and go with someone to understand and, and to help create those advocates for what we're doing. Because just like what you said, George, is it's a, it's a sport that's under attack and a divided sport. Uh, and so that's what my next question for you is, how do you see any um, division maybe in some of these new hunters that are the, the, the young professionals that did not grow or have hunting in their family and they're getting into it completely different. And then we've got our old demographic of the old school. I don't know if like deer camps are a big thing in your area or uh, like it is in kind of Michigan, Wisconsin, those kind of places, but it's a big weekend event or week long event and you go out and it's traditional thing where that is so different than the young professional getting into the field and going out on their own because they've got no one else to go with. How do you see those two groups interacting? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, you've got some people that it's tradition because of tradition for the sake of tradition, and that's just the way we've always done it. And they're not thinking any bigger than themselves. Almost doesn't seem to matter how old they are. Um, sometimes young people stick to that tradition even more than folks that have a lot more of experience. And then you got new hunters that don't even know about that. They're, they're, they're completely clueless. Um, you know, I think one of, if not the fastest growing hunting segments right now is uh, young professionals who are hunting with crossbows. And that's, that's one of the fastest growing segments in our region in terms of hunting populations. And uh, it's interesting because the, these are sometimes folks of any, you know, different background. They could be across the political spectrum. They could come from all sorts of different walks of life. They could be people that are maybe anti-gun and, and they're getting a crossbow and they want to go hunting. And, and to them, it's something you know natural and primal and whatever the case may be. And then you have a sort of hunting culture that is anti-crossbow and wants to see them banned from the state and think it's the worst idea you know, to ever come out and, and anybody who uses one is cheating. And you, you sit there and you want to be like, really? I mean, on one hand, this is the only hope we have of saving the sport at this point because of the decline of numbers and the decline in dollars and conservation and, and all of that. Unless we find some way to engage new people, you know, this is this we're one generation from this thing potentially being over with all the pressures on land and everything else and game and whatever's going on. And then you've got these two groups and you know, the, the young professionals, just to use that moniker for, you know, encapsulate this new audience, they don't even know there's a conflict. They don't even know that, you know, there's people that, that are looking down on and despising what they're doing and, and their perspective and, and how they're choosing to go about it until they have a bad experience, until they run into somebody, until they meet somebody at a restaurant or at a bar or wherever they go and, and, you know, they start talking about, and then all of a sudden, you know, the the person who ought to know better, the seasoned hunter, the person that's grown up in it and family and culture and all that, they, they've never made this shift from their tradition and where they go hunting and their tree stand and anybody else walking through the woods is a threat to them. And, you know, they would just as well, you know, see the sport decline because that would mean there's fewer hunters in the woods. 
until it reached the point where, well, there weren't woods anymore because the public land would be gone. Game control would, would be, you know, just totally thrown out of balance. And it really is a strange scenario. And I think part of, part of my job and well, this that I've taken upon myself is to help speak into and educate both audiences about, you know, the reality here, about the truth, about the camaraderie that there ought to be, you know, crossing all lines and all borders and that shared love and passion to be outside, to be in the woods, that appreciation for game and animals and all the beautiful things that are out there. And, uh, yeah, it's a it's a strange kind of place that we find ourselves in. Now, you could find one group of people at one camp, and and they're all right on. They're solid. They they understand. They get it. They're they're great people. They you know they just want to nurture and help and bring everybody into the sport they can. And then you could go to a different camp, and it is it is completely the opposite. No, we're not taking new members. No, we don't anyone else in the woods. No, we don't think anybody should be able to hunt with any other tools that would get new sport. And you, you just have this strange anti-mindset, which I want to believe is less today than it was five or ten years ago. But it's definitely still out there and still active and, and something that just needs worked on. And you can find it on Facebook quick and easy. All you got to mm-hmm. do is post any controversial thing and you'll see what percentage are the naysayers. Yeah. I'm curious to see as data comes out on that of, well, anecdotal data on, on how that culture has changed with so many people really diving in into it and wanting to procure their own meat and be a, a hunter and, and have something to pass along to their kids and all those reasons you said, as well as that you're seeing some of these new hunters. So very, very interesting. We'll, we'll see that probably in the next 20 years as to the bigger picture. So it'd be kind of, kind of interesting to see. Um, but yeah, some, some things I, I noticed that are not so different between hunting in the West. And I, I think hunting in the West is, seems to be kind of a popular new thing. People like to want to plan your elk hunt. You want to go West. You want to, there's a lot of, um, attention being put there. And for whatever reason, good, bad, it's fine. But there's there are some similarities, and one thing I notice is you mentioned the Orja Army. It's the same look language we use here, <laughs> same language, uh, nice. with with uh, more so in Colorado and and Colorado for sure. That becomes a bit of a, a pumpkin patch on the hillside of the the Orange Army out there, and and it, on muzzleloader seasons, you hear at the end of the day the of <laughs> muzzleloaders emptying out and. Uh, it, it's, that's a thing for sure. And it's not the wild west anymore of come out here and not find anybody. You have to, you have to work to not find people. And that's a common, common thing. And access is not, not a whole lot different either. Uh, I, I've seen issues there uh, of, it's definitely difficult to find access with, with having people that are paying for hunting. And if you're not willing to pay for hunting, like I'm not, I, I, probably won't ever really I don't want to I, I think I try and work for those those relationships and uh, get to know the people and, and work on on a not that I don't not fiscally able to do that sort of thing but um, so that access is is tricky 
it's pretty tricky and, and the knocking on doors can be successful in places and uh, not in most. So, uh, and then similar thing with, we've got big chunks of private public land and the West is loaded with public land. Uh, but there are chunks, say in South Dakota here and our neighbors in North Dakota, Nebraska, where public land is not, not really a thing. And a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are in that same boat of uh, there's not the public land in their state. So um, one thing I am seeing that I think is interesting is you mentioned a lot of archery hunters getting into uh, the sport because of creating more opportunity. And that I really noticed over the last 10 plus years of that growing in popularity. But now I'm seeing even landowners say things like, you're not hunting with one of those stick and string things, are you? Like they almost would rather give you permission for rifle hunting than archery hunting. And that's a brand new concept that I'm just throwing out there that is maybe localized to a certain spot. I'm not sure, but maybe they're getting, seeing too, uh, quite a bit more of these archery hunters and maybe getting a little more contentious about them being uh, wounding deer or they sit there for 20 days and they don't get anything uh, and they're on their property longer. I don't know. Or they have deer issues and they're like, I really need some deer removed and you can't get it done with a stick and a string. So I don't know what that is. I'd be curious to to hear some feedback from other folks of, are, are you also hearing things from landowners that they just are getting reluctant with more archery hunters. So I'm curious. And then, uh, another similar, the last thing, uh, another similar thing I see is the, it's the young professionals for sure. That's, that's echoed out here as well. Same, same thing. So yeah, we're not all that different, even though, uh, we're, we're in far different cultures. Yeah. You know, it is much more of a, a national, hunting culture today of course than it's ever been and you know you've got different pockets regionally of what's hunted and and what the traditions are regarding that particular thing but yeah i i I definitely see what you're talking about i've talked to some folks up in alaska and um you know definitely even some similarities up there in terms of how Mm. some things are perceived and talked about Uh, i do see though you know the, the the future of the sport is going to be one where it's about the sport. It's not about the tools. You know, there's lots of marketing out there, lots of companies. They want to sell their tools, their guns, their bows, their crossbows, all of that. And, you know, that's their prerogative. But I feel like, you know, to move the sport forward, we need to, to separate the sport from the tools that are used. You know, mm-hmm. rifles, a great tool. Crossbows, a great tool. Vertical bows, a great tool. And uh, each one can be enormously effective depending on whose hands that it's in. You know, I've seen crossbows where, you know, deer have dropped faster and expired quicker from the same shot placement that I've seen with a 30 caliber rifle. You know, no less effectiveness whatsoever. Diminished range, of course, and you got to know your ranges and you got to understand, you know, arrow drop and trajectories and all those things. Um, but you know, very effective, very humane and the same way vertical bows. I mean, to me, that sort of represents the pinnacle of, 
um, you know, the, the sporting and and you know the the physical aspect that goes into that and the practice and the upper body strength and you know I, I've been I've talked to folks that they just they love shooting a bow they love drawing back that string they love the the tension that it puts on their arms they love the control that they feel like they have on the arrow to them that's sort of the pinnacle of the experience. Uh, but at the same time, you know, a compound bow today compared to, uh, you know, a recurve bow 20 years ago, the difference in performance and effectiveness is even greater than the difference between any vertical bow and a crossbow. The technology just come so far. The capabilities have come so far to say, you know, a crossbow is an inappropriate tool, but you're going to use a compound bow that is using space age technology um you know it's just it, it's it, it's almost a, just a complete and total mental fallacy to even think like that but i think bigger than all of it is divorcing the tools from the hunt we're gonna go deer hunting we're gonna go elk hunting we're gonna go duck hunting and whatever tools we use you know, we're going to use the tools that are best tuned to our budget, to our scenario, to the timing and the seasons we want to hunt and the tactics and the strategy, but it's not about the tools. And, uh, you know, I made it a point several years back to just not put a weapon in the shots that, you know, the pictures that I took with down deer or turkeys or whatever, I just decided several years back, I do not want a weapon in my picture, not because I've got anything against any weapon, but because I want the hunt to be about more than the tool. You know, I understand people, they want the rifle in there because they want to remember they use that rifle and maybe that was their granddad's rifle. And I get that. And I'm not against that in any way, shape or form. You know, I've got, I've got tools I'm sentimental about also, but you know, for the way I've taken it upon myself to try to be this ambassador to the hunting community, I've decided, you know what, I personally don't want any weapon in the frame from what's going on. The tool is a tool, and we can appreciate the tools, and we can have tools, and we can really enjoy the tools. But I want to sort of per, per put an image out there that this is bigger than the tool. The tool doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of bow I was holding. It doesn't matter what kind of rifle I was using. It doesn't matter what the broadhead was. What mattered was getting outside. What mattered was the strategy. What mattered was, you know, scouting and being in the right place at the right time and keeping your nerves together and the adrenaline rush and, you know, everything that happened after and all the good memories and uh, trying to change that perception away from, you know, fighting and squabbling over tools and posting pictures on Facebook with different tools in them to focusing more on what I think is the, the purest and most translatable element of the hunt, which is the pursuit of the game and being outside. And I think I rambled maybe longer no, there fine. than I needed to <laughs> on that point, but well, that's, uh, that's just been one of my perspectives. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective because it's, we can tell you've had a, had a lot of conversation around that and because maybe of the methods of take are, are coming up in uh, discussion in sportsmen and that is not a not an uncommon conversation here but it's not a very common one it's not 
it's not that common to talk about the uses of crossbows because you can't use a crossbow here or in many Western states without having a handicap permit or something like that. So we're, we're not in those conversations right now. So it's just a, um, it's an interesting perspective to hear, hear from someone who, who is in a state that that is allowed and, and has that perspective. But I, I yeah, also let me, add, let me add one more nuance yeah. to that. That might, might, uh, make more sense to a wider audience then. And that is, you know, maybe you take a deer with a bolt action rifle or you take a deer with, uh, you know, an AR 13 or any other modern sporting rifle. And there's a lot of perceptions and there's a lot of political thoughts that happen based on what weapon is pictured in the frame and, you know, some of the conversations that can devolve from that. So part of my thinking was, you know, just taking all of that out of the equation and focusing on the bigger thing, which is the hunt. And I've talked about, you know, on different episodes, even devoted to that topic and, you know, trying to, to help people understand the totality of the conversation. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, there's arguments that can be avoided if we just focus on the bigger thing and the thing that's the most important. So didn't mean to hijack you there. No, you're fine. Uh, But let's uh, wrap this up. And and if there's some new hunters out there that are listening to my podcast, where can they find you and find your podcast? And and tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find the new hunter's guide basically anywhere you can find a podcast of any sort, you know, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere pretty much. I've I've got this thing just wherever you want to go. Uh, but if you go to the website, newhuntersguide.com, you can find the categories, whatever you're interested in hunting, deer hunting, bear hunting, turkey hunting, waterfowl, whatever it might be. And I have every show of the 180 or so that are recorded have been organized, not just by category, but by subcategories. And, you know, if you're interested in deer hunting and you want to, you want to know about gear, well, there's gear. You want to know about archery, there's archery. You want to know about land management. We've got a category on that. So you can quickly find whatever you're interested in, whatever topics within that category you're interested in and, uh, you know, go from there, consume it however you want. But I would say, you know, the people listening to this, I'm sure some of you, this might be speaking to directly, but I bet, you know, somebody that's thinking about it, that's an aspiring hunter or new to the sport or would like to get into the sport, but just haven't, you know, just haven't made it over the hump. I think this is a resource that that you can take to them. It's non-threatening. They can consume the content at their own pace. And I think that's the, the number one way to grow the sport is by helping and equipping people that have interest, but aren't maybe quite ready yet to walk out into the woods. And a lot of people, they, they kind of have a fear of going out with somebody and they don't know what they're doing and they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. And they'd rather prepare and research and get their head wrapped around it before they're willing to say yes and go out on a hunt. And this can be a tool that can help them. Well, very cool. Well, George, I want to thank you for your time this evening. And uh, we'll get this out and, and, and get it to my listeners. So appreciate you and your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Clint. I really appreciate the opportunity. Love the work that you're doing. And can't wait to get you on my show in the future here also. Absolutely. 